thank you for your donation to Corbono, a nonprofit organization dedicated to the study of Scripture according to the mind of the Catholic Church. If you like this talk, we invite you to share our website, www.corbono.com, with others so that together we may participate in the evangelization of the third millennium. Our speaker, Najim Awad, lives in San Diego, California with his wife and seven children and has been studying and teaching scripture since 1995. Najib believes the Catholic Church holds and teaches the fullness of truth, and with his tremendous zeal and insight, he is able to communicate that raw truth without sugarcoating the teachings of the Catholic Church. He also believes that our job is not to change the truth, but to communicate it clearly and directly to others. And now, here's Najib. chapter 35, which is really the closure of the cycle of Jacob, and next week we will begin the cycle of Joseph, the last cycle, and perhaps the most powerful cycle, in a sense, in the book of Genesis, the cycle of the patriarch Joseph. Let's recall from last week what happened. The daughter of Jacob, Dina went into town and to meet with the daughters of the land. And we understand now that that did not mean she just wanted to go there and have a chat over a cup of coffee at Starbucks with them. What that means instead is that she's going to party in downtown San Diego at midnight. All right? She knew what she was doing. She didn't talk to her father. She didn't seek his blessing. She just went. And the prince of that town saw her. And in his mind, and how, how appropriate, and you see there are these spans of years that separate us, but nothing changes much, does it now? He sees her, and as far as he's concerned, she's just a, um, you know, a product on the shelf. Because there's such devaluation of the dignity of the human being in the mind of Shechem, the prince, that to him, human beings are objects. So he goes after her and he rapes her. And then now sets a whole chain of events. So while I would say to you, her, her own deportment was, um, was not wise, she behaved foolishly, that obviously does not in any way explain or justify the action of Shechem. She just behaved foolishly. He essentially committed a heinous crime. That sets a a chain of event that leads to the brothers of Dina, Reuben and Levi, to go into town and kill all the men, all the male, all of them, while they were on their third day of pain because of the circumcision they had agreed to. And then the rest of the brothers went in and looted the entire city and took the children and the wives, the women, into servitude, into slavery. From a covenantal point of view, so if we abstract away from the human drama, what happened to specifically 
to Dina and specifically to Shechem and to these people in the city, from a covenantal point of view, what we need to understand is that the words of God that he spoke to Abraham always come true. I will bless those who bless you and I will curse those who curse you. And the curse effectively is triggered through the actions of his sons to where the city is essentially destroyed. You need to understand that in our own time, this battle is ongoing. This battle is ongoing. Let me ask you this question. Do you think it is in the interest of the devil to bring up the end of time today? And is it in the interest of God to bring up the end of time today? What do you think? I'll ask you two questions. What do you think the devil's plans are? as far as he's concerned. When would he want the end of the world to come? But let's remember one thing. One soul in heaven, one soul in heaven, causes him more pain than all the souls in hell could cause him satisfaction. Because one soul in heaven is the eternal confirmation of the plan of salvation of God. The best thing that could have happened for Satan is that none of us make it to heaven. That would have been a complete failure of the plan of salvation, right? So every soul that goes to heaven adds to his pain. And that is why anybody who tries to improve his spiritual life and goes on the journey, he will encounter opposition. Right? The, the nuns, especially contemplative ones, will tell you that in all of San Diego, downtown, there may be only one demon roaming. Because there's no point in bothering the people who are just walking, marching down the wide and open road, the easy one. Leave them be. Don't let them believe the devil exists. The last thing the, the devil wants them to believe is that he exists. Do you understand? He's not there to, he's interest, he's not there to just gloat right now. He, he wants them to believe he doesn't exist. Because if he doesn't exist, there is no danger, and let's go and have fun. But around a monastery where you have nuns praying or monks praying, you probably have thousands, if not millions of demons waging war. Because those guys are going the other way. So as far as the devil was concerned, he wanted to bring the end of the world right when Adam and Eve fell. That would have done it. So it is in his interest as much as possible to bring the world to an end. Yesterday, today, it is in his interest. Right? And how does he bring the world to an end? Can he bring the world to an end? Does he have that power? No. What can he do? Pardon? Mislead us. Okay, why misleading us will lead the world to an end? Because he knows how the covenant works. There are blessings and there are curses. So if he can mislead us so that the curses of the covenants are triggered, he gets what he wants. And not only that, on our personal judgment, he'll be there, the first one to accuse us. Because of you, your friends can go to heaven. You understand? He wants the maximum penalty he can get for us. And he does it even though he knows that in the end of time, his own suffering increases. Every time he tempts a human being, every time he whispers something in the ear, 
every single time he does that, his pain increases. And it does not stop him. Now, let's talk about God. What does God want? What do you think he would want the end of the world to come? Exactly. As far as God is concerned, if the end of the world were to come around the year 200,000, 252,732 A.D., that would be just fine. We're the ones who are in a hurry because we have a whisper in our ear. We want to put an end to all of this. We want it to stop. Do you understand? Why? Because even in our own hearts, despair tends to be stronger than hope. Because despair is something... We know very well. We're very familiar with it. We know what we're dealing with. We look at the world. There are earthquakes and there are wars and rumors of wars and famines and disasters. And look at the society here. Everything is falling apart and decomposing and breaking up. And, and it looks like it's the apocalypse, the end of the world. Right? We measure things based on how they impress us. We measure things based on our impression of them. How Strongly they impress us, therefore we react. But, but that's, is, that, is that what our faith is teaching us? If you stand by the cross, when Jesus was dying on the cross, it looked like a complete disaster. It was the end. Here he is, dead on the cross. They told him, come down from the cross, we'll leave in you. He didn't even do that. So that's it, sayonara. It's over. Let's go home, watch I don't know, football or baseball or something. It's over. But it's precisely when it looks so gloomy that the greatest victory was being affected. Who saw that? Mary. She saw it. She knew. She never wavered in her belief. She never wavered in her hope. She never wavered. Ever. Yeah. So here we are today. In this crazy world of ours, right? In this crazy world of ours. All the killings and all the destruction and all the the society going haywire and all. Yes, it is. It is. But can you see through it all God doing something new and great? Can you see through it all, through all the dark clouds, the rising of the sun that is going to happen? The coming of the Lord in glory, the sounding of the trumpet, the clearing of the sky, the movement towards the evangelization of the third millennium. John Paul II was no crazy guy. He knew when he spoke of the evangelization, the new evangelization, he said not the new evangelization of the years 2000 to 2050, the third millennium, in my mind, in my, I'm, I'm, this is me thinking here, I'm, I'm pretty much convinced, and that's me again, it's my personal opinion, that Saint, uh, Saint uh, John Paul II was a mystic, and he saw something that he conveyed to us in those words. He saw the year 3000 dawn upon us. He didn't see the end of the world. This is Lent. We are in Lent. What is Lent? What is Lent? Lent is not the time where we think about the things we're losing. Oh, I can't eat, you know, I 
can't eat chocolate, and I can't have ice cream, and I've given up coffee, and I'm just about to climb the wall, right? and I can't chew gum, I'm just going to chew the bench. Right? We tend to focus so much on the things we're leaving behind that we kind of forget the things that we are receiving. What is Lent? Lent is victory in the making. You want to taste victory? That's how it tastes. Lent is a wonderful season. I mean, think about it in this crazy world out there where everything is going haywire. What are we doing? We're, we're fasting. We're giving things up. Why would you give something up unless you expect something better? Right? Common sense, isn't it? You're giving something up because you expect something. You better expect something better. If you're just giving it up without expecting anything, you really have a problem. You need to think about that. You're giving something up because you're expecting something better. What if you're expecting something better? Isn't that hope? Well, then if you're hopeful, be hopeful. See beyond the clouds. It's a storm. It will pass. This is the paradox of Christianity. That as the darkness around us grows, our hope grows as well. And we are we are justified to believe this way because if you study the history of the church, if you study the history of the Catholic Church, you will be very comforted by what you see. Kingdoms came and kingdoms were gone. Empires rose and disappeared. Stalin stood up and people told him, the Holy Father is against you. And Stalin answered back and said, how many tanks did the Holy Father have? Where's Stalin? People today are proclaiming, you know, the end of Catholicism because of all the crises we have, you know, the church is coming to an end. You know what? The church always buries her undertakers. You know what an undertaker is, right? The one who takes care of the dead. The church always buries her undertakers. Always did, always will. Always will. So whether you, pers- you have a particular situation right now, you're going through difficulties, you have things facing you that are not working the way you want, you're not making progress over something that is important to you. You may be trying, seeking a husband, seeking a wife. You may be seeking a job. You may be lo- you, you're trying to have a child and you're not able to. You're facing some difficulty. All of us are. All of us are, right? Remember, God is not interested in how successful you are. He's only interested in how faithful you are. And if you can understand that and live according to His time and not yours... You will live in peace, even in the midst of trouble. Even in the midst of trouble. I'm trying to um, configure. I'm trying to configure a Linux server right now with SSL to be able to replicate my website, so I can actually move it from server to server without a problem. And for the past week, I'm not going to tell you how many hours I've spent on this. It'd be funny. Well, in some way. For the past week, I'm facing a very arcane bug. And I have no way to debug it. I have no echo. I have nothing. No messages. I have no idea why I'm having this bug. But it's right there in my, in my face. You know? And when you face something like this, all your emotions, all your in- uncertainties, all your sense of defeat come to the fore. And you, you, we want to blame somebody. You want to blame God? I mean, why are you stopping me? I have so many other things I need to take care of. I have a family. I come up with a, a ton of reasons why this should not be here. 
I'm very good at that. God saved me from becoming a lawyer because otherwise I would have no chance to go to heaven. Hmm? I can come up with a very legal, very good legal defense why I'm right and he's wrong. Yeah, we have this propensity in us to do this. The problem is I'm not listening, am I now? He's trying to tell me something far greater than my little problem. I'm not listening. I don't want to listen. And the beauty of our God is that unlike us, He doesn't give up. He doesn't say, well, you don't want to listen? Forget you. I'm going to go see what Johnny over there down the street is doing. I was with you for 24 hours and trying to tell you something. You're not listening. Forget you. He doesn't. You just stand by me, watching me doing all these commands. I'm not getting anywhere. And he just waits. Waits till I finally am so frustrated, I get up, and I'm not doing this. And then, he reminds me of the importance of all of this. Be faithful. Leave success to me. This is Lent. This is Lent. We have to keep that in his... We have to always bring ourselves back to the center, central tenet of our faith. And if you have an issue with this, read the Gospel of St. Luke. If there is one word to, re, to sum, sum up St. Luke, it is joy. If the, every time the angel came, come, I bring you news of great joy. Joy, the word comes over and over and over again. And the joy of the Lord is expressed in hope, in the abiding peace, in our ability to smile and laugh and accept what happens to us, lift it up to God, and keep on going. That is joy. It isn't being giddy. right? But it's the ability to not be wounded by the difficulties we face, let them come to us and let them go and continue on our way. That's the grace of God in our lives. That's joy. Lent is supposed to be joyful. Because Jesus said, paint your face, do all that good stuff. I'm just paraphrasing here, right? So that people don't know you're actually fasting. Because if they did, you got your, you got your bonus right there. Right? Why you hide this? You do it because it is a secret. It is a treasure that you found. Lent is a treasure. You have to treasure Lent. It's a wonderful season. So if you haven't yet started, this is the fourth week of Lent. We have four weeks to go. If you have not started on your fasting, if you have not started giving something up, start tomorrow, tonight. And do something that hurts. Not, okay, I'm not going to chew a gum at 11 o'clock on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday for about 15 minutes. Okay? Do something that hurts. Do something that scares you. Do something that takes you to the limit of yourself. Yes. Ah, wonderful. Yes. The question is, during this period, why am I insistent on it? Because this is not a period where you carry this all by yourself. The church opens the floodgate of her graces, and they come upon us. We receive so much more graces in the season of Lent when we're fasting than we do it on our own. Now, hopefully we'll continue after Lent to, with the same discipline. 
What happens, let's say, if you start something? Suppose you say, okay, I'm not going to have ice cream, I'm not having any sweets, I'm not going to have any coffee, I'm not going to have any meat, and I'm not going to have anything to eat or drink from midnight to noon every day. Except Sunday, obviously. But then you have to go to Mass, so it just doesn't count. All right. Let's assume something like that. Now you're a little bit more, you know, serious about it. And by the way, if you do all of this, somebody in Africa will be laughing at you because whatever else you're doing is their luxury. If you have two meals a day, that's a luxury for them. All right? So let's also keep that in mind so unless we, you know, start thinking of ourselves as, you know, I don't know, saints or something. We just got there because we're able to do this, right? But let's assume you try to do this and then four days later you just sit down and have a gallon of ice cream. Okay, you fell, get up, pick up, start again. Right? St. Uh, uh, Jose Maria Escriva, the Christian, the Christian life is to begin and begin again. Begin and begin again. So you fell once, that will get you to know yourself better. That will give you an occasion to humble yourself, to know the truth, to give glory to God, trust in His mercy, make an act of hope. An act of charity, because you love him. Offer up the fact, the suffering that comes from your, the, the, that, that you feel because you fell for the salvation of souls. Get up and start again. Yeah? And the blessings keep on flowing. That's it. You're faithful. You haven't been successful, but you're trying. You're putting your heart in it. You're honest. You're sincere. You're telling. Think of it this way. And hopefully one day God will bless you with many, many children if you are married. If a kid comes to you three years old and he's trying to draw something and he's been trying and trying and he's trying to draw, I don't know, uh, the Pieta. He's three years old. You know he's never going to make it. But it doesn't matter, does it now? To you. He's trying to do it for you. How happy does that make you? Right? And if he fails, what do you tell him? He's all sad and upset that he that he that he messed his drawing. What do you tell him? Try again. If he does, you know, I don't want to. What is that a sign of? Well, a sign of pride. Yeah. It's a false perfection. Right? That's what it is. So, like, the same thing with us. St. Teresa of Avila says, everything we do is like adding straws to the fire. We can't kindle a fire. We can't start it. We can't keep it going. This is all the work of Christ. We add a little bit of straw to it. But Christ is very happy with a little straw that we add because it adds sparkles. The fire sparkled better or different color come out of the little straw that we added. And he's happy with that. Yeah? Okay. All right. Let's get back to the chapter. God said to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there and make there an altar to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, Put away the foreign gods that are among you and purify yourselves and change your garments. So after all the events that they had gone through, God now comes to Joseph in his, in his moment of sorrow. His daughter has been raped. His boys went in and killed a whole bunch of guys and took all these people, destroyed the city. And he's worried now that all the followers of the city... Because that city in which they were, uh, close to which they were, essentially has a territory of about a thousand uh, mile square, square uh, square mile. 
And therefore, a lot of people live there. And eventually, they're bound by treaty to come and defend or attack and retake what has been taken from them. So he is in the middle of a very difficult moment of his life. And if you observe, he had to run away from his brother. He ran and got conned into marrying a woman he didn't love. Then married the second one, and that brought him only troubles. And had to stay another six years serving their, his father-in-law. And then he had to run away from him. And he was pursued by his father-in-law. And as soon as he dealt with his father-in-law, he had to deal with his brother, who came to him with a company of 400 men. And he was afraid of his brother. And once he had dealt with all these issues and all these problems, and finally settled down, look what happened with his children. You notice? Father-in-law, brother, children. The family's broken. Mary, for women, see what happens. None of that happened to Isaac. One woman. Faithful to the covenant. He had a peaceful life. Do you think your life is hard? This is Jacob, whose name shall be Israel. He's a saint. Canonized by Jesus himself. For he told the, uh, the Sadducees, have, not, have you not... have, have have you not read what is written in Scripture when God spoke to Moses and told him, I am the Father, I am the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob. Therefore, our God is the God of the living. And in that, he indicated that they were alive, not dead in the spirit. They were dead. What does he mean by living? He means there are saints. Right? This is a saint. God comes to him in the midst of all of this, just as he does for us in the midst of our difficulties. When we think we've had it, when we think we're completely done, God comes to us and picks us up. He does the same thing. And he tells him now, go back to Bethel. What happened in Bethel? That's when he had the dream. That's when he saw that ladder that led to heaven. And angels descending and coming down and going up along the ladder. And God enthroned on top of the ladder. God is bringing him back to this vision. Lift up your head. Look up to heaven. And offer sacrifice. Why? Because Jacob said, when God will bring me back safely, he shall be my God. Well, now I brought you back safely. Fulfill your vow. And now he's about to do that. Observe how God puts the liturgical aspect of our life at a higher plane than all the political mess and all the economic mess. How do you fix politics and economy and history? Through liturgy. Liturgy fixes that. It is the celebration of the Mass, when done by people who are living in a state of grace, when done reverently, when done with true love, when we, we offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving to God, that God in His turn goes into the world and let His graces flow and fix the world. So he's about to go there, and then he tells his children, put away the foreign gods that are among you, and purify yourselves, and change your garments. This is the first indication of liturgy in the Bible. Very first time where an act of purification is required before you can go up to the Lord. Notice, purify yourself. This is why confession is required. Confession is a necessity for us before we go to Mass. Purify yourself. Jacob 
saw that and told his children, put out the strange gods. What does that mean? All the things that you love, all the things that you made your God, whether it's your car, whether it's the sports, whether it's the TV, the games, your work, whether it's women or one woman or children, put up the strange gods. Purify yourselves so you can be presentable to God. And those strange gods, they probably are, the, remember, the ones that Rachel brought with her from her father, but probably the ones they took when they looted the city. Because those strange gods typically are statuettes which are made of precious metal. Put up all of those things. You can tell right now that there is a breakdown in his family because the faith that was given him is personal. It is his faith. It is not yet the faith of his children. They don't believe in the same God that he does. And he, in fact, confirms it when he says, Then, verse 3, Let us arise and go up to Bethel, that I may make there an altar to the God who answered me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. His experience is still very personal. He has no way yet to pass on that experience to his children. The thing that you take for granted today that has given us the grace to pass your faith down the generation is not yet present. And yet so many families these days don't pray together. So many families, you don't have the parents sitting, especially the father, blessing his children, praying the rosary with them, calling everybody to prayer. So that the faith may be passed down. So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods that they had and the rings that were in their ears. Why the rings in their ears? It isn't because they're just the regular ears. It's not that they're trying to take away cockiness or, or uh, being, let's say, uh, overly, uh, um, overly dressed. It simply means that these ear, the ear, ears that they had in their ears, the rings they had in their ears, have a um, religious connotation, they, in fact, indicate their worship of the pagan gods. Think of them as amulets. Right? So they're associated with worship of false gods. That's why they're giving away those things. Right? So for us, we have to give away, we have to give up what? What are those things representing? Our bad habits. The habits that we're attached to. We need to give those up if we were to go up to the Lord. And in this case, Jacob represents the priest. We go in confession to him. We give those false gods. We give those things that we, we hold on to dearly. And then we purify ourselves. And we receive the blessing of the Lord. So we can actually enter into his altar and worship him. Right? And there are so many of these habits flowing around your homes. That sometimes we're not completely aware of them. I'll give you one that many folks from the Middle East do. And I think it's funny. That's the reading of the cup. They actually drink this Turkish coffee, and then after they're done, especially the, the women do that. I haven't seen a men do that, although maybe they do. I don't know. In any case, they drink this coffee and then, tur- and then turn, twirl it and turn the cup upside down and then look into it and then read things, and they see a whole zoo, you know, horses and things. This is divination. This is sorcery. And then yet, these same women are devout and say the rosary and all that, and they wonder, why is it their prayer not answered? Well, duh. Can't do that. You give it up. Many Catholics think it's okay to read your horoscope. That's sorcery. You can't do that. 
Or, okay, I go to see uh, somebody who's going to read my future in the palm of my hand. That's sorcery. You cannot do that. Or, you know, there's this rated R movie, and there's these sexual scenes in it, but it's okay, I'm above it. I'm just going to sit down and watch it. Okay? Great. That's idolatry. You cannot do that. Or there's this PG-13 movie, and there's this racy scene in it where this woman is almost half naked, but not completely. That's okay. No. That's idolatry. You cannot do that. Do I have to keep on with the list? Then there's the guys who, you know, have no problem saying heck and hell and using all these words, left and right, uh, you know. And then you have those who use the, word, the name of the Lord in vain. And I think it's okay they can go to Mass. You use the name of the Lord in vain once, and God forbid you die, you have one ticket straight to hell. As simple as that. Purify yourself. Lent. What must come from your mouth? Yes, yes. No, no. And then let's not even start on rash judgment. You know, we judge like this. Anybody, in any time, in anyone. And on and on the list goes, right? So, purify yourself. This is Jacob saying, do that. Come to me. And obviously, in our case, the purification is external. It isn't internal. There is no washing of the soul. Just washing of the body. Because the grace of Christ is not present. So they gave to Jacob all, that, all these. And then he hid them under the oak which was near in Shechem, the city. And it's really strange why he hid them under an oak. Usually, the, what you would see is, later on especially is destruction. They would be completely destroyed. In this case, for whatever reason, he didn't destroy them. He just hid them. Maybe because he was worried that he may be pursued by these people. And in case he, they, he, he is pursued, at least he can give them back something that is extremely valuable to them, their own gods. That could be the reason why he did that. And as they journeyed, a terror from God fell upon the cities that were round about them, so that they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. God fulfills his covenant to Jacob, and because of Jacob, the, what, what, what his sons did remained for now unpunished. A terror fell on the cities. God takes care of his own. There are in numerous uh, stories, personal stories, of uh, uh, people. So, for instance, obviously, St. He's an Italian saint. He's taking a whole care of a bunch of uh, orphans. Thank you. St. John Bosco, right? He had this dog, Gray, appear and stay with him for 30 years. You know a lot of dogs are going to live 30 years? Okay. Um, even on, in our own time, there is this woman who was walking down an, an alley, and it was dark, and it was not a good neighborhood. And she saw a bunch of guys who were not um, very reassuring, but then suddenly they looked at her, and they took off. And then later on, somebody told her, yesterday I saw you walking down this, uh, this, this, uh, this uh, alley. Who are these two huge guys, the two of them walking behind you? She was alone. God takes care of his own. Right? If we trust him and we trust the covenant, he takes care of his own. And Jacob came to Luz, that is Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan, he and all the people who were with him. And there he built an altar and called the place El Bethel, because there God had revealed himself to him when he fled from his brother. Notice verse 6, which is in the land of Canaan. 
Why is that indication? Because, again, there is this constant uh, repetition of what God is going to give to him, the land of Canaan. And even though God is going to give it to him, it doesn't come about in a day. It's going to take a long time to come to, to fruition. You know, it's kind, of, it's kind of annoying because as I'm working on a service of mine, I can almost hear a voice in my mind saying, okay, the land of Canaan was not conquered in a day. You know, and I don't want to hear it. I just want it done. Why do I want it done? Because I just want it done. Why do I want it done? Because I don't want the pain. Ah, here we are. Not the pain. Not the cross. Anything but the cross. I don't want the pain. So, he and all the people, so he goes to lose, and he builds an altar, and he calls it El Bethel, which is the God of the house of God. Bethel, Beit El, the house of God. And he calls the altar, he gives the altar a name. Isn't that interesting? The God of the house of God. He named the altar, which is obviously a prefiguration. Because who is the God of the house of God? Jesus Christ. This is whom the altar represents. That's why we bow before an altar. I see people getting confused because when they see an altar, especially in churches where they've separated the tabernacle from the altar by about a half a mile, right? People go to the altar and they kneel. No, you don't. You don't kneel before an altar. You bow. You kneel before the tabernacle. Understand the gestures. This represents the cross of Christ. This represents where he sacrificed himself. By extension, it represents him. It's a sign pointing to him. But the Eucharist in the tabernacle is not a representation of the Lord. It is the Lord. Substantially the Lord. Right? So that's the difference. That's why we bow in one way and we kneel the other in a, in a, in a Latin rite. Then God... Verse 8, And Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, died, and she was buried under an oak below Bethel. So the name of it was called Alon Bakuth. Okay. Um, imagine, I'm giving you, I'm, I'm talking, imagine there is somebody here talking to us about nuclear physics. And he gets into the depth of quantum, um, uh, the quantum theory, and he's explaining all this to us. And there's formulas flying all over the board. And right in the middle of all this conversation, he turns around and he says, and now I'm going to show you how you make a lemonade. Would that strike you as normal in a lecture on quantum physics, that somebody shows you how you make a lemonade? Okay, that's what just happened right now. Verse 8. Verse 7. And there he built an altar and called the place El Bethel, because there God had revealed himself to him when he fled from his brother. All the way through, it is God calling to him. Verse 9, God appeared to Jacob again, and he speaks to them. Verse 10, what are verse 8 about? And Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, died. Deborah was mentioned once before, only once. When Rebekah was given to, to Jacob, Deborah came with her as well. She was her wet nurse. That's it. In the middle of all of this, in the middle of this whole covenantal text about God's faithfulness and God calling up Jacob and Jacob going up there and God appearing to him, in the middle of all of this, oh, by the way, uh, 
Deborah died. Why is it inserted here? It's a three-word answer. I don't know. We don't know. It leads us to think that maybe where they were, there must have been this tree that is mentioned, right? The, the, the oak named Alon Bakuth, which is re- related to Rebecca. And because it is there, the author wanted to make a reference to this event to explain where the name came from. And presumably, the readers, the initial readers, had a much wider context about Rebecca to connect it, which we've lost. There is no satisfactory answer I could find that can tell us why. Neither in the Christian writings among the fathers, nor in the Torah, nor in any of the um, commentaries written by the Jewish rabbis. There is no proper explanation why this is here. It is here. Okay, but the interesting thing for us is to always be mindful of this fact. Don't ever tell somebody, oh, start reading the Bible. Don't do that. Often than not, you can lead them astray than bring them into the faith. The Bible is not an easy book to read. It's actually very difficult. There are parts in the Bible that are extremely obscure, if you haven't yet gathered that, right? And there are parts which are very shocking. And please, especially if it is young teenagers, don't just tell them, just start reading the Bible. There are parts in the Bible I don't let my teenage kids read on their own. They're very difficult passages. And the meaning is not obvious. At all. So if you want to recommend somebody to read, be more circumspect and recommend that they read, say, the Gospel of St. Luke, tell them, why don't you start with the Gospel of St. Luke and pick up the edition by the University of Navarre, which is the, um, the Navarre Bible. You can buy the Gospel of St. Luke by itself, its own individual book, for about 12 bucks. And you have five lines of the Gospel and half a page of commentary and explanation. Right? That is a good way of introducing somebody to Scripture. But please, do not tell them, sure, just, you know, read the Bible. Why don't you start in Numbers? Don't do that. Okay? And God said to him, your name is Jacob. No longer your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So his name was Israel. At that point... You're going to have to make that distinction now. His people are not called Israel. Yes? Only Jacob is called Israel. The rest of the people are not. It's not a name that applies to the nation yet. That will come later. And that is the name that God had for him from all eternity. Israel. Okay? The interesting thing is that the names that end with E-L usually are reserved to angels. We know three of them, right? Raphael, Michael, Gabriel, Israel. That tells you something about the dignity to which God raised Jacob by giving him this name. By the way, uh, for those of you who are here maybe the first time, if you haven't... been here before. I don't do politics. 
You'll, speak, you'll, you'll hear me speak very, in very glowing words about the Jews and Israel. Please do not take what I'm saying as, a, um, as an endorsement of the policies of the state of Israel today. Nor is it a condemnation of the policies. nothing to do with it. I'm not here to do modern politics. All right? But I do say to you that uh, um, if somebody harbors in his heart hatred toward the Jews, he will not make it to heaven. That is a guarantee. If you have hatred toward the Jews in your heart, you have to purify your heart. You have to ask the Lord to help you purify your heart. Hatred towards anyone, but in particularly, particularly the Jews. Because they are the people of God. Remember, Jesus never said, he never said, I'm not a Jewish anymore. I just gave it up. Mary never said, I'm not a Jew. They are. It's part of who they are. He's true God and true Jewish man. Not just man, Jewish man. He chose it this way. This is how he is in heaven. I always loved those representations of Jesus with the blonde hair and blue eyes. Ah, no, they were not cursed by Jesus. That's an interesting point. People think that uh, the Jews were cursed because when they called upon, uh, when he, they said to, to Pilate, crucify him, his blood be upon us. Because if he's innocent, that's a curse. His blood be upon us. But it's not, but okay, even though they said that, his blood was on. In fact, that's what he wants. He wants his blood on his people. They don't want it. Let me ask this question. Anybody who receives the blood of Jesus on his head, is that a curse? What is that? It's a blessing. You see, he contrived to get them to ask for what they need through what they want. Jesus managed to get them to ask for what they needed most, his blood upon them, and couch it in what they wanted, his crucifixion. If in order to save you I must be crucified, so be it. But I will bless you in my crucifixion. No, it's actually uh, a teaching of the Catholic Church that the Jews are not cursed. And St. Paul reminds us at the end of time, right? One of the signs of the end of time is the conversion of the Jews. But they're not cursed. Let's, let's keep that in mind. So, anyhow, let's, this is an aside. I just want to make it clarify this and keep on going. So he changes his name and God said to him, I am God Almighty. He doesn't say, I am God. I am God all." Mighty. And sometimes in our prayers, especially when going through rough times, it's good to say, Dear Lord Jesus Almighty. Dear Almighty God. You can do all things. Help me. Be faithful and multiply. Here we go again. God is like a broken record. Like the only blessing He has, there is no, revel- there's no new revelation in any of the blessings. He said it to Adam. And since Adam, there has been no new blessing. It's the same. I am God. Be faithful. Be fruitful and multiply. Every single time. Why? Because life is a blessing. Now, we are aware of it as far as we are concerned. We see somebody who's 120 years old. Nobody says, what a curse this person is living under. They're 120 years old. How can they bear that? 
Do we ever say that? No. We look at this person with awe, admiration, envy, and we think it's great. It's a blessing. Life, for us, it's a blessing. As far as the others are concerned, well, that's debatable. Not so with God. Life is always a blessing. Be fruitful and multiply. Jacob, by the way, is not living on a yacht right now, is he? He's not a millionaire having made his money on the stock market and enjoying life in some far corner with no worries whatsoever so that he can actually be fruitful and multiply, is he? He's in a dire situation. He's, he, these people around him, he's afraid that they're going to come and kill him. There is no stability in his life. Now, put yourself in his shoes. Wouldn't you have preferred if God had said, I am God Almighty. I'm changing your name to Israel. This is really good. So far, so good. Now, what would be the next thing you would really want God to say? If you were Jacob. Pardon? Let us take it further. Let's make that protection real. What would you really want? Yes, dry them out. Clear up the land. You gave it to me. And since you're at it, can you please put a fence and a sign that says Israel's land? No trespassing, exactly. Wouldn't you want that? Yeah? And while you're at it, God, could you take off the, all the wild beasts as well and just clear the land and, you know, give us the, 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 you know, the honey and the, and the water and all that good stuff. Right? Now what you want? That's what we want. I want that bug to go away. I don't want the bug. I am God Almighty. Okay, great. Be fruitful and multiply. What is that translating into? Be fruitful and multiply. Yeah, but what does it translate into? A lot of little things running around and destroying your house. Yes? Yeah. That's what it translates into. You see how... God's perspective is so foreign to us sometimes. How is that a blessing? Ah, Because there is so much more that God wants to give us after this life. That's the thing we keep on forgetting. Our view is so horizontal. We just live here and that's it. We're going to live here forever. God knows what, what, you know, beyond the veil, there is something we can even understand or imagine So, be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall spring from you. How would you feel if I said that to you? You're in the middle, right now you're unemployed. You are being sued for libel. The income tax is after you. Your credit is in the trash. Yeah, And you're afraid that somebody's going to come and make you homeless on the street. And God shows up and says to you this, nations and kings shall come after you, from you. How would that make you feel? He's crazy. Would, you, would that make you feel very happy? Right there and then? Okay, I, I, I really need you to understand what Jacob is going through. Otherwise, you're going to take Jacob and put him on a pedestal, and you think, whatever he's going through, it has nothing to do with me. I'm not like him. 
Put yourself in his shoes. That's the blessing. Be fruitful and multiply. Okay, Lord, hold on. I have 12 boys, 11 actually, 11, and a girl. And all I got from them so far is trouble. So, you sure you want this business of fruitfulness and multiply? And then, that's well and good that nations and kings are going to come from me, but what about all these other people around me right now? In other words, understand the blessing. Is there anything in it for Jacob, personally? Is he going to benefit from it? No. That is the nature of a blessing. And that's our problem. We think God is Santa Claus. Because when we receive a gift at Christmas, it is for me. I get to rip up the thing and then look inside of it and be happy or not or return and get something else. It's mine! Like one wise guy said, it's my precious. I have it. It's mine. A blessing doesn't work this way, is it? Be fruitful and multiply. That's not for him. He's already been there in that department. And nations and kingdom come from him. Okay, great. I'm not going to see any of it. Confirmation? Observe. Verse 18. I'm just jumping ahead. This is Rebecca, his beloved wife, giving birth to her son. Verse 18. And as her soul was departing, for she died... She called his name Ben-Oni, but his father called him Benjamin. So let's see. His daughter was raped. His boys destroyed the city, killed the men, took a whole bunch of people into slavery. And in one journey, one woman died, uh, the, uh, her, the wet nurse died, and his wife, the one whom he loved the most, of all the four women he had, the one he loved the most is taken away. And God just blessed him. I mean, can can that be any clearer than that? Do you understand how many times the problem is us? We have a complete misconception and understanding of what a blessing is. We think a blessing means Our Lady appearing to us. Or, you know, we pray and we levitate. Or God declares that we are a saint. Or something wonderful happens in our prayer. We're consoled. We're feeling great and wonderful. And we're happy. That's not blessing. That's a cane that God gives us because we're so weak. A blessing is the emptying out of ourselves. That's a blessing. It's for others. It's when we give from ourselves, not because we benefit from it, but we give to others. That is a blessing. That's how God blesses. You know? We better get on with the program. So you see, it's this, that's why the, the virtues are so important, because we need the virtues in order to be a blessing. So essentially, what is Jacob? Think about him. To us, what is Jacob? What is he? He is a gift. Without him, we would not be here. Without Jacob's faithfulness, the whole line down to Christ would not be here. He's a gift to us. Blessing is a gift. So in a marriage, when God blesses a marriage, what is the man and a woman supposed to be to each other? A gift. A gift. What does that mean, a gift? It means that when a man looks at his wife, 
he sees in her a gift that God gave him. And that in their marital union, there is a complete self-donation from the man to the woman and from the woman to the man. In particular, it means that the man is not using her to satisfy his own lust. You know, a lot of women, when time comes to have a marital relationship, will claim they have a headache. Why? It's very simple. They know they're being used. They're not being loved. They know that. So the, pro- the, proper, the proper of a marriage is that it purifies the intention of the husband, it purifies the intention of the wife, and turn them towards each other into a gift so that they can be a true blessing to each other. Hence, sexuality in a marriage is not a bad thing. It's the sign and the completion of the gift. Where the woman gives herself to her husband and the husband gives himself to his wife. But it cannot happen unless throughout their daily lives that self-donation, the blessing, is ongoing. Where the man truly is dying for his wife and the wife truly is serving her husband. When that happens, they are a blessing to each other. That's the sign, that's the power of the covenant. You you hear me often talk about the covenant in almost legalistic terms, the curses and the... Which is true. But the deeper reality is when you look at it from a perspective of love, the covenant is the seal of the blessing. God, in self-donation, empties himself on the cross for us, and us, in return, receive this gift and we become gift to others. That is the blessing. That's what happens here with Jacob. So then Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he had spoken with him, and he poured out a drink offering, which is essentially oil, poured out oil on it. And Jacob called the name of the place where God had spoken with him, Bethel, Beit El, the, the house of God. So essentially, it is a representation of us going to the church, the house of God, where God blesses us and we become blessing for others. You realize during Mass, I don't know if I pointed this ever to you or not, but during the liturgy, and this is most clear in the old Latin liturgy, it's very clear, it's a beautiful liturgy, if you ever have a chance to attend it, um, St. Um, Magdalene and Vista, I think it's St. Magdalene. Is there St. Magdalene Vista? That's a new church. No, St. Magdalene, I think. It's uh, by Oceanside and uh, Mission or something in Vista. College, college and Oceanside. Uh, Sunday evening, the, 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 um, the, um, the priest at uh, St. Magdalene, the, the pastor, has a 6 o'clock mass with Gregorian chants. And then you read, the, you read the booklet and you follow through and you see the beauty of the Latin rite as it was and hopefully will be again. But in it, it's clearly explained that the priest essentially says what? Here are these gifts. We pray that these gifts go up, are taken by the angels to the altar in heaven. And when they come down from the altar of heaven, they're what? They are the body and blood, soul and divinity of Jesus Christ. So therefore, we now have something to offer you, O God. We have a worthy sacrifice that we may offer you. 
That's what happens at Mass. And then we add our little haystack, our little pieces of grass to the haystack, our sufferings during the week, who are taken by our angels and brought to the altar and mixed with that perfect offering, and they're all lifted up to God the Father in propitiation of our sins and the sins of the whole world. We become gift to others. That's what Christ enables us to do. Without the sacrifice of Christ, all our sufferings would not be acceptable by God the Father. They're not acceptable. Only when joined to the suffering of His Son, they become acceptable. Perfect offering. That's what happens at Mass. That's what happens here. He, he is a gift to others. And yet, it is couched in the midst of suffering. He just had his wife, whom he loves most, die in childbirth. And she gives him the twelfth son, Benjamin. Ben-Oni, son of my sorrow. And, and uh, Jacob turns it into Benjamin. So Rachel died, and she was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. And you notice, again, Scripture is so terse. There is no, no, no notion of how Jacob felt, how sad he was, none of that. Because the focus is really on the work of God in our lives, not on how people feel. It doesn't mean it's not important, but that's not what the focus is. And so he set up a pillar upon the grave of Rachel, and it says, which is there to this day, and we know that um, during the time of the, of the exile to Babylon, the, the tomb of Rachel stood. And, you, and then, so to, to, to cap the whole, the whole series, we now have this little episode. While Israel dwelt in the land, verse 22, Reuben went and lay with Bela, his father's concubine. His oldest son went and lay with Bela, one of his concubines. I will bless you, says the Lord. Why did he do that? We will see it in multiple places of Scripture. And again, this is why I'm, I'm telling you, Scripture is not an easy book to read. All right? You have to be careful to, uh, how you advise people on reading it. But um, in, uh, in essence, so the Torah... The, basically the law of Moses in Leviticus chapter 18, verse 8, and 30, verse 11, reinforced the curse of the Deuteronomy, chapter 27, 20, which forbids a sexual relationship between a son and the wife of his father. The prescription probably reacts against the widespread, widespread practice of the eldest son inheriting the wives of his father along with the estate. Such was customary among pre-Islamic Arabs until outlined by the Quran. And the practice may have existed in contemporary Canaanite society in Jacob's time. As the firstborn son, Reuben, in effect, prematurely lays claim to an inheritance that he would have expected to be his eventually. So this is really a matter of, uh, of uh, leadership, is asserting his authority after the death of Rachel, because Rachel was the most beloved wife of his father. Reuben, being the son of Leah, did not want to see his mother's position threatened by any of the concubines. And in doing what he did is his way of saying, I am going to be the one who inherit. I'm going to be the one next in line. So um, this happened also, for instance, um, uh, when uh, Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, was so alarmed when Abner lay with his father's concubine and why the, the accused had to defend his loyalty. 
Uh, and the same principle explains why Nathan's censure of David when he took Bathsheba included this sentence. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, It was I who anointed you king over Israel, and it was I who rescued you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and possession, and possession of your master's wives. In 1 Samuel 12, 7 through 8. Through the prophet Nathan, he indicated to him that when David became king, he took the wives of Samuel. It was the established habit of asserting authority over um, the, uh, the royal position. And that's what Reuben did. He's basically saying, now I'm just going to assert what is rightfully mine. That tells you, obviously, how um, broken the society is and how it can be broken without the presence of God. And always remember the words of Chesterton, modern man does not know what he's doing because modern man does not know what he's undoing. So as, we, as the society take, take back all the uh, rules and all the laws that were born out of the uh, Judeo-Christian experience, these things that we see in Scripture can be, will be repeated. Now, Jacob says nothing. There is no response from him right now. It will, we will have to wait until the very end, and we'll see what response Reuben will get. But now, as this cycle of Jacob closes, it closes with a genealogy. And the genealogy lists the son of Jacob, because now there are 12. The sons of Leah, Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, and Zebulon. The sons of Rachel, Joseph, and Benjamin. The sons of Bela, Rachel's maid, Dan, and Naphtali. The sons of Zilpah, Leah's maid, Gad, and Asher. These were the sons of Jacob, who were born to him in Padan Aram. And Jacob came to his father Isaac at Mamre, where Abraham and Isaac had sojourned. Now the days of Isaac were 180 years. And Isaac breathed his last, and he died, and was gathered to his people, old and full of days. That's a sign of blessing. You will live, you will grow old, and your life will be full of days, meaning it will be satisfied. And his sons Esau and Jacob buried him. So with the close of the, the cycle of Isaac, we close with ja- the cycle of Jacob, we close with Isaac. Presumably, Isaac died earlier, but it's put here specifically to close as a closure before we move over to the cycle of Joseph. So um, if you think about the life of Jacob from beginning to end, and imagine how difficult his life was, and yet through it all, He remained, personally, he remained faithful to God. Never gave up. That is again a portrait placed before us to show us exactly how God wants to act towards us with one difference. One difference. And that's a key difference. And and this is it. And, And the difference is the following. The distance between earth and the farthest star of the galaxy is smaller than the distance between Jacob and you. Your holiness exceeds that of Jacob by the distance that, more so than the distance from earth to the farthest star. You need to realize the dignity to which God has raised you. Because you are the children of His church. And you live by the graces of the new covenant. 
I know it's hard for our hearts to be lifted up when we hear those words. Because life goes on and we have our difficulties and worries and so on. But if you can take this in prayer and sit down and meditate on your life and understand in the light of Scripture, understand that God walks with you. And the blessing that He gave Jacob, He gave you one that is much greater by the power of baptism, by your reception of the communion, by you being able to go to confession and not having to carry a load with you all your days, by being able to live a life united to the Son of God. The glory to which you will be raised will far exceed the glory to which any of the saints of the Old Covenant were ever raised to. That's the calling that God has for you. And it doesn't matter if at the end of the day you're successful with your little plan. It doesn't matter at the end of the day if I fix that bug. Although I'm going to fix it. But it doesn't really matter. What matters is how am I living the pain of facing this bug and not being able to fix it? Am I running away from the cross? Or I'm staying at the foot of the cross with the agony and the difficulty and the frustration and the pain and through it all, being able to smile and look at my children and not vent my frustration on them. That's the gift. Are you a gift to others? If you're married, that's a very good point of conversation. Husbands and wives, take the time to ask yourself this question. Honey, am I a gift to you? If you don't dare ask this question, you need to think why. There may be something there that needs to be worked on. Honey, am I a gift to you? How can I be a better gift? That's important. God bless you. Questions? Yes. Correct. Well, in a Latin rite. Yes, but in a church like ours. We don't need at all. I know. I know. You shouldn't be leaning. Well, let me be precise. We do not kneel during the liturgy. For your own personal devotion, you're more than welcome to kneel. Right? But for the liturgy, there is no kneeling. We stand and we bow. That's the Eastern tradition of the liturgy. And I, I, I wish they would explain this better. Uh, the liturgy is not a space where we offer our own personal devotion. It is a space where we come together to show the unity of the people of God. And in the East... It comes, it comes from the way they showed honor to the emperor. In the Eastern Roman Empire, the emperor would come and sit on his throne, and everybody would stand, nobody would sit, and they would bow low. And that's how they showed that they are the subjects of the emperor. And so we carry that forward in our tradition where we bow to the Lord, who is the king. In the West, they, the soldiers used to kneel before the emperor, and so they kept that tradition of kneeling. Uh, beyond that, for your own personal devotion, you're free to kneel. Have I confused you? Was this helpful? 50 50, I'll take it. <laughs> Any other question? I have one question? Yes. So the question is why did uh, Isaac have one wife and Jacob have multiples? He had four. And did he offend God in, in, in one way or another? The interesting thing, the one. 
demarcating point between Isaac and everybody else is the life of prayer. Isaac was a prayerful man. The servant that Abraham sent was a prayerful man. He asked, show me the one. When uh, Rebekah came, Isaac's wife, Isaac was praying. And when they saw each other, you can tell God was calling them and they loved each other. When she was barren, Isaac went and prayed. All his life was rooted in prayer. And I think it has something to do with the fact that he was the sacrifice offered by Abraham. So of all the, of all the, the, um, these, of, of these three um, uh, patriarchs, he's, he's the one who had only one wife. Uh, and I think, if I'm not mistaken, jo- Joseph also. Joseph had one wife as well. We'll see that. Uh, now, in the case of Jacob, he was led purely by uh, personal, by, by human uh, attraction to, uh, to Rachel. And that got him in trouble. Because when he married Leah, he didn't go and pray and say, Lord, what am I supposed to do? And Laban came and said, okay, I gave you one, I'll give you the other. He said, okay. That is already uh, spelling trouble. The reason why God doesn't react right away is because he has not yet installed that. He hasn't actually told them, you'll only marry once and you'll have one wife. We had to wait for Jesus. Because not even Moses could tell them that. They told him, Moses allowed us to divorce. And Jesus said, yeah, for the hardness of your heart, he allowed you to divorce. Translation, if Moses didn't allow you to divorce, you'd probably kill your wife to go get another one. Isaac, Isaac yes. Yes, I mean, of all the patriarchs. Obviously, there are other figures that prefigure, other persons in the, in the Bible that prefigure Christ. Job being one, obviously. Um, David is another. But Isaac, in his life, uh, definitely has, uh, among the, the patriarchs, seems to have the one that is closest uh, to, to Christ. And, and Joseph as well. I and mean, Joseph is one of my favorite patriarchs. Uh, you, you'll see what Joseph does when we come to him. Yes. He had more than one relation. Let's just put it this way. Yes. So in the question, in the case of Abraham, he took Hagar because uh, Sarah gave it to him. Sarah wanted to use Hagar just as a tool to get to her end. But as soon as this happens, these are human beings. They're not tools. As far as he was concerned, he had two. And he had to... Uh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. It's not about technicality here. Uh, you know, you have actually... And I've met some people who told me that in their culture, it's okay for a man to have an affair as long as it's just, you know, not regular. That doesn't count. Yeah, I'm not talking about Africa. I'm talking about San Diego. Right here in San Diego. All right? So, no, you can't. I mean, it's, the act matters, right? So, yeah, in San Diego, part of the culture. Yes. Pardon? I'm not going to go into the details. But, uh, so, yes, because how do we explain um, the um, redemptive pain as part of the blessing? Well, that's the greatest gift. When somebody suffers for you, that's the greatest possible gift, isn't it? His life is truly a blessing for you. If he's suffering for your salvation, if you're saved because somebody suffered for you, that's the greatest gift you can receive, isn't it? Oh, of course, because he's united to Christ, right? 
Yes, redemptive pain, when, when suffering, when you get to the point where you're suffering for others, not for your sins, then you're called to the greatest possible glory. Then it's not as, it doesn't, we, we don't usually call it redemptive, we call it purgative. His suffering to atone for his sins. Right? Different. Right? It's still a gift, right? But because Christ makes it possible. But the other, the redemptive suffering, is when you suffer not for your own sake, but for the sake of others. That's the greatest possible gift that you can give, right? Yes. Yes, it is a very good point that uh, possibly the, 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 the hatred of the Jews may have come from the Muslim culture. The interesting thing I, for Christians who've lived among the Muslims, um, the question we always have to ask ourselves is that we, the reason why God put us amidst Muslims is for a very clear reason to bring the truth of Christ to them. Right? That's why we're there. Because we, as Christians, cease to be Christians. That's why. When we, as Christians, decide that we only have three kids, and we're going to contracept, and use abortion, and have our kids called doctors and lawyers, and we go around after all the, the honors of the, of the earth we've ceased to be Christians. We've become pagans. And God give us our due. You want? Is that what you want? You're, 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 you're uh, lusting after honor and glory and recognition? I'm going to send you to the land of honor and glory of recognition. Go live there and see what it looks like without me. Why do you think we're in exile? Exile is always a curse. It's one of the curses listed in, in Deuteronomy and Leviticus. You will not live on your land. Your land will not bear its fruit for you. It will not give you its due. Others will possess it. Why? You're not faithful to the covenant. That's a good question, are we? Uh, I don't know. Exactly. Yes. Look, look, it's, it's obvious to me when God, God will always purify His church, and He will be much more severe with His church than He will be with the world. Because this is where much has been given, therefore much is required. You know, the problem that we have, all of us, whether we are Catholics here in the United States, or Catholics from Iraq, or Catholics from Lebanon, or Catholics from any part of the world, is that we always portray ourselves as the victim. It's the Muslims, it's the liberal, it's the Democrat, it's Obama, it's this, it's that. We always go into rash judgment of others and accuse them of our woes, and we don't understand the words of the gospel when Jesus says, if you want to take the little shard that is in the eye of the other, take first the trunk that is in your own eye. None of us take a critical look at our own society and see where it went. I can tell you, growing in Lebanon and watching my, uh, my parents and, the par- and, and all the people around us, I'll tell you right now, that was the life of pagans. That was not the life of Christians, the judgment that these people had on the Shia, on, oh, the Shia and the Sunni, they just have a whole bunch of kids and throw them in the street and they just want to make money. And that's true. Really. How do you know that? Talk about rash judgment. The judgment they had on the Palestinians, the way they put people down. Whether it's true or not, it doesn't matter. It's the hardness of the heart. There is no love. There is no charity. There is no care for others. They only care for ourselves. Then the contraception, and only three kids, and we shouldn't have any more. Why? Because we're now civilized. We're like the Americans. 
and teaching our kids to, die, to, to, to dance like um, Elvis Presley. God have mercy on his soul. And the Beatles. And no attention whatsoever of the complete hijacking of a Christian culture by a pagan culture. It became more important for us to say, whoa, that's cool, than to say, God bless you. And, but, but of course, we're just victims. How did our forefathers, how did our forefathers last for all these years in the midst of Muslims? Why? Ask yourself this question. Why did they last while the centuries wore on and they were hard? They were hard years. Now, I haven't studied the, Chaldean, uh, the history of the Chaldeans, right? but I've studied the Maronite history. Three of our patriarchs were, two were died at the stake, one was burned alive by the Ottomans. I'm not going to go beyond that. The life was never easy. Why did they last and we didn't? Not the Muslims, and it's not this, it's, it's us. We decided, no, we're just not going to be rich and wealthy and be playing the same game like everybody else. Well, okay, God said, do you want to do that? I'll send you to the land where you can be wealthy and fulfill the American dream. Go ahead and see what happens to your kid. They'll grow up, they won't know you, they'll go do your own thing, and they'll put you in a, in a, in a uh, retirement home. And when you're just about to die, the day before, they'll come around you and they'll do what they have to do, and then they'll be gone. Now, if that's not a curse, I don't know what a curse is. That's the reality that we brought upon ourselves because we don't even want to recognize Lord, have mercy on us. We have sinned. When was the last time you've seen a procession, whether among the Maronites or the Chaldean, right, to expiate the guilt of the people for all the abortions and all the contraceptions in this, in this century? When? What do you expect? It'll keep on going. And God will keep on doing what He does because He's faithful and true. It's our own doing. Yeah, it's, it's for the, which is wonderful. Don't get me It's beautiful. But if we as people don't expiate our own sins first, purify yourselves, how can we offer? All right. Any other question? Yes. Okay, sure. Um, if you have a good health, so if people have, let's say, hypo, if the people are hypoglycemic, you don't follow what I'm saying, all right? Because you have, you have a, to have a, you have to take care of your health, right? If you're in good health, just start with this, right? Uh, no food and no water from midnight to noon every day. And then have two meals if you can. No snacks in between. And keep your meals simple. No dessert. No sweet. And, uh, um, and that, w- that would do it. That would be a good start. Okay? All right? Yeah, but that's, again, that's why, I mean, this is from the bishop, this is the Maronite bishops, so I, that would only go to the Maronite. But the, 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 uh, the recommendation from our bishop here, the Maronite bishop, is to do what our ancestors did, right? Fast this way and then no white, nothing white. So no cheese, no yogurt, no egg, no, nothing white. Okay? So don't go there yet, right? And by the way, what I'm talking about right now, this is... Five-star hotel for 80% of the people on this planet. Having two meals every day, two warm meals every day, that's five-star hotel. So let's not, um, you know, imagine that we're just being heroes here. We're not. The people who, unfortunately, 
don't even have that. Yeah? There's four weeks to go. It's four weeks. It's not the rest of your life. Four weeks. All right? Yes. Are the Christians in Egypt a good example to live among Muslims? In one sense, yes, they are, obviously, because they managed to live in peace. Uh, more, I mean, the, all the Christians in all the Middle East have managed to live in peace with the Muslims. The question is, to what degree have they been able to retain a pure Christian life? Are the Copts in Egypt looking in that uh, thing, and uh, the, the coffee thing, and flop it around and reading in it? Uh, are they also full of superstition, as many Christians are in the Middle East? Oh, you can't walk under a, a ladder because something's going to happen to you. And if somebody's on the, on the, and on, laying on the floor and you cross over them, then they're never going to grow tall. And if you count the stars with your finger, you're going to get I don't know what. And it's a bewildering list of nonsense. Don't sweep at night. Don't use a scissor inside the house and don't open a, a, um, an umbrella. And on and on it goes. This is not our faith. And... This is not a, and then wear a blue, put a blue thing for the kids to protect them from the, the, the evil eye. Now, I do believe in the evil eye. Don't get me wrong. It is true. I mean, there are, but it's not as common as people think. There is such a thing as the evil eye. Father Amor speaks of it. But you, do, you don't defend it with a blue piece of stone. It's the crucifix and the metal and the sacramentals that defend you from it. We're so full of non Christian, non-authentic Christian culture. And we just carry it over and pass it on to our children. We think we're good, we're good Christians because we're just saying the rosary. When are we going to wake up? We can't live like this. All right? God bless you. We hope you've enjoyed this talk from Carbono. For more information about this and other talks, please visit our website at www.carbono.com. Thank you and God bless you.